You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. I want to wish Happy Mother's Day to those that are mothers here today and just really resonate with Hans and his prayer. Thank him for leading us in that way. I'm really thankful for so many of you and how you lay down your lives so well for the people in your family. And I think motherhood is in some ways a unique pathway of servanthood that is done in the inspiration and in the image of Jesus, the ultimate servant. And uh, I know so many of you take that very seriously, and it makes a difference. It's hard sometimes with a lot of you mothers in the room that are mothering littles. Uh, it's minutia. It's a kind of a grind sometimes, day after day. But as someone who is a parent of older kids now, um, we haven't done it perfectly. But there is like such a blessing in that minutia and that repetition of parenting that does pay off. And um, so we're, we're so thankful for mothers just know that today. I just want to share real quick um, that I'm going to be gone for the next three weeks. Uh, the next Sunday and the Sunday after that, I will be going to Ecuador, and the weekend after that, returning from Ecuador for what I do typically once a year is go down and teach with our partners uh, in their ministry there, Compassion Connection, and teaching a kind of like a lay seminary class experience for a whole week. And uh, Morgan Ritter is in the back. Wave, Morgan, don't be shy. And Jen Wright over here. You guys know Morgan and Jen. They'll be coming as well to really serve the conference really well. I think it's, it's you guys is both first times, right? Yeah. And so really excited that they can see what's going on in Ecuador. As well as Ben from Eastside Church. He's going to be teaching a class as well. And um, we look forward to having a great week. So I'll be gone the next two weeks. And then the week after that, uh, Kim and I will be taking some vacation and celebrating our 25th anniversary. And so really, yeah, can't believe we're that old, but we're really excited to, to be able to celebrate that together and be gone for a week for that. So I'll miss you guys, but this is what I love about our church is um, it's not centered on me. Um, we have a great team of, of elders and leaders. And so James and James and David Jordan will be preaching in the next three weeks and they do a phenomenal job, so I'm really, really thankful for them and our other leaders that we have. Well, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 23 this morning, so if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel 23. If you're new to your Bible, 1 Samuel uh, is not too far after those first five books. One of the things that's unique about me compared to a lot of people I know is this, um, I hate cars. You know how some people are like, like I, I know guys that are like car guys, you know, they're like really into their car. I'm just not into cars. It's not one of my things. Um, if I'm going to spend money, I'm going to spend it probably on my shop or something like that. Um, like, I just don't feel like it's wise. And if you're different, that's fine. This is not a biblical issue. This is a preference. I just don't feel like it's wise to sink money into a depreciating asset. You know what I mean? Like you drive off the lot and the money just goes with it. You know, it's just gone. Um, 
So cars to me kind of feel like a necessary evil. I say that all the time. Just kind of a money pit, right? But it's a necessary evil. And teenagers that live in your house driving those cars on your insurance policy is even more of a necessary evil. No offense, guys. Love you guys. I'm glad. But let me say this. Them driving, in contrast to like so many of you have littles, it's a blessing. Okay, it is a blessing. But in some ways, it's a necessary evil. We have teen drivers now. In a few days, uh, three out of four of our kids will be driving and driving on our insurance policy as a family. And it's inevitable as a parent, eventually you get the call, like I got a few months back. Dad, I got in a car accident. I'm fine. Everyone's fine, but I don't know what to do. Okay, very normal. I was there when I was a new driver. Um, it happens to everybody. There's always some form of adversity that comes when you drive a car. Accidents, parking issues, cars that break down, flat tires, the list goes on and on, right? And when you're a new driver and you're faced with some adversity that everybody faces when you drive a car, it's really nice to know that you have access to someone that can help you. So most of us probably have, with our insurance, like roadside assistance. I've used that many times. It's a blessing. But if you're a new driver, like my, my, my kids, and you face some adversity, like your first fender bender, your first call is probably to dad or mom, right? Like, dad, I got in an accident. I don't know what to do. So you walk them through it. They trust you. They listen. They do what you say. And usually everything turns out just fine. See, they, they, your kids, in this scenario, they view you as dad or mom. They view you as having more control. They, having more control of that situation because you own the car, you own the insurance policy, you've done this before, right? So they place themselves in the hands of the one who has more control over the situation. This is very normal and natural for our teenage drivers to operate this way, right? And this is what we're going to see in our text today, but in a different kind of way. David is going to place himself in the hands of the one who has more control over the situation. David is faced with some severe adversity, way more severe than a car accident, and this is the main point that we're going to see in our text from today, okay? When faced with adversity, disciples turn to the one who is truly in control and do what he says. Let me say that again. When faced with adversity, disciples turn to the one who is truly in control and do what he says. So before we dive into our text in 1 Samuel 23 in our Life of King David series, let me just bring you up to speed again for those that are new or for those that may have missed a few weeks. Um, just as a side note, like if you, if you can't make it church for whatever reason, sickness or travel or whatever, um, try to listen to the MP3 on online um, because it just keeps you up to date on where the narrative is heading 
And seeing the life of David globally will really be helpful when we look at specific things from week to week. So here's just kind of what brings us to today. Here's the backstory. So David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. God speaks through his prophets in the Old Testament. And he says, David will be king. Now, that can be a little threatening to a certain guy. The certain guy's name is Saul, and he's the current king. And we find out that he hates God's promise, that he's been rejected as king. Even though he's still the king, there's a day coming when he will be replaced by David. That's God's word. That's God's promise. And Saul is crazy jealous, and he tries to murder David many times as a result. He's he's psychotic. We're going to see that again today. So much so that David is on the run. Saul and his men are trying to hunt David down to kill him. And so what does David do? He's hiding in, in wilderness places, in caves. And that's what we read about in 1 Samuel 21 through 23. That's where the story of David's life takes us. And this is where we find David as we pick up in chapter 23. He's still on the run. He's still being hunted down. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and are robbing the threshing floors. So the Philistines are God's Uh, enemies. They are the enemies of God's people, okay? It's important to know that. And they're always attacking God's people. They're at war with God's people. And so David hears that there's these Philistines that are attacking some of God's people in this place called Kela. Kela would be like an outpost of God's kingdom, of God's people. These These are Jewish people. These are part of the nation of Israel in Kela. And they're being attacked. So verse two, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Caleb. So what do we have here? It seems pretty simple, right? God's people in Caleb are being attacked by God's enemies. And David, who loves God and loves God's people, who's already been the hand of God's judgment, on the Philistines, remember with David and Goliath, that whole narrative? He asked God again, should I go and fight your enemies and protect your people? And he asks, God answers, God says yes, God reveals himself. Pretty simple, right? But consider what's not named in the text that if you were reading this for the first time as an ancient Israelite, you might be wondering, well, why is David doing this and not Saul? that, That would be a good question. And what does that show us about Saul and about David? Like, who's the one who should be protecting God's people? Well, it should be Saul. He's the king. But what is Saul doing? Saul's ignoring 
his people, he was called to protect and lead, and waging an unjust war instead on one man because he's consumed with selfishness. He's consumed with rage and jealousy. See, if you're feeling threatened, that you're going to lose your power, can lead you to be consumed with jealousy, like it will massively screw up your priorities. That's just true for any of us. But we see that come alive in King Saul. It jumps off the page. Saul's paranoid. He's obsessed with power. He's not seeking the Lord. He's not doing God's work. But in this chapter, David is. David is seeking the Lord. Did you catch it? It's really simple. David inquired, right? He inquired. He's asking. David's thinking about others, the people, God's people in Calah, while he's on the run for his life. Like, that's selflessness, right? If anyone had an excuse to not maybe care that much about what's going on in Kayla and God's people, it would be David, right? Like, the whole weight of Saul's authority and kingship is focused on him to kill him. But David's seeking the Lord. He's advocating for God's people, and God speaks, and David listens. Look at verse 3. Now he confronts a little resistance, though. But David's men said to him, Behold, like, check it out. David, listen up. We're afraid here in Judah, his men say to him. How much more if we go to Kayla against the armies of the Philistines? So David's seeking to do the right thing, but there's still resistance from his own people, those that are with him. And this is not new. Remember in the account of David and Goliath? And David is walking around among the army as Goliath is out, just uttering his, his curses and his threats and just declaring them and spewing forth all of this garbage towards God's people. And David says, guys, let's take him. We can take him. And it says, the Bible says that God's people, God's army was, was, was scared. And that's kind of happening here again. David's men are probably thinking, man, we've got enough pressure We've got enough pressure. Saul has got the whole army at his disposal. They're trying to kill us. Anyone aligned with King David? It's a lot of pressure. And they're thinking, do we want to do this, engage in another conflict with Philistines while we already got this other conflict going on? Don't we have enough pressure, David? So what does David do again? Take note of the theme. It's going to come up. What's David do again? It's really simple. He goes the opposite way of Saul and he just asks. He asks God, right? Probably for the sake of the guys that are with him. They're scared. Look at verse 4. Again, we see David asking. David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him again. God says, arise, go down to Kayla, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. God speaks here again. And he's gracious. Like, God doesn't say, I told you already the first time, David. He doesn't say that. He, he condescends to us. He says, David, 
I will give you the victory. That's God's word. That's God's promise, right? And notice again, it's easy to miss. Notice who's in control. For I, God says, I will give. It's not David the military strategist, ultimately. That might be a secondary cause, but the primary cause, according to this verse, to verse 4, is that God is in control. He is the one that gives the victory. What do we learn in David and Goliath? The battle is the Lord's. David is not in control, and he understands that, and that's why he asks. That's why he seeks the Lord. And also, asking always implies humility, right? It implies humility. Like, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the control. I don't have all the power. So I'm going to go to the one who does. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says God opposes the proud, like Saul, and he gives grace to the humble. Asking involves humility. Asking implies humility. We don't see Saul asking much. He just assumes. He's not operating out of humility. He's operating out of selfishness fueled by jealousy that always leads to fear and anger. See, when we're faced with adversity, disciples turn to the one who is in control and do what he says. We see that in this chapter over and over again. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. And David and his men went to Cala and fought with the Philistines and brought back their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Cala. So what do we learn here? God is true to his word, right? God fulfills his promise. When he said, David, it would, David it's going to happen, it happens, right? God fulfills his promise. God always fulfills his promises. He never fails to, to do what he says he will do. And that's good news for us this morning. Well, as the story continues in chapter 23, the text takes a bit of a turn at verse 6. Let's take a look at this. And this is going to need some uh, explanation. Verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David in Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Okay, so there's a, a lot that needs to be explained here, okay? But it all connects. So hang with me for a second as I explain this. So what verse 6 is talking about is what takes place in chapter 22, which we have not looked at in depth. So in chapter 22, here's what happens. David's, like, like you guys know, he's on the run. And as he's on the run from Saul, he stops and he sees some priests, some worship leaders of God's people. They were called priests or Levites. And they help him. They give aid to David. They give him some food, some bread. Well, it turns out that Saul hears about these priests that lent a helping hand to Saul's enemy, David. And as an outworking of his psychotic, jealous rage, what does Saul do? He slaughters him. It's horrible. A horrible chapter. And all of the town where these guys live. 
So 85 priests and the whole town where they live. Man, women, child, animals, just wrecks the whole place. And it shows truly how unhinged and demonic Saul has become. He's willing to slaughter God's chosen worship leaders because of his pride and his jealousy. And this shows very clearly Saul's not interested in worshiping God at all. He's interested in worshiping himself. See, David just saved God's people in Kayla, and now we see Saul destroying God's people, his appointed worship leaders, and all that are associated with them. Like, the contrast between these two could not be any more stark in this chapter. Well, as it turns out, though, he doesn't get everybody. There's one lone survivor, and it's this guy named Abiathar. He's the only survivor, and he flees to David for refuge and his army. And David tells him in chapter 22 that, Abiathar, you can stay with us. We'll protect you from Saul's rage and his insanity. And verse 6 of of chapter 23, though, gives us some information about Abiathar that's really important to the account in verse 23. And so when Abiathar the lone survivor from this horrible attack comes to David. We learn that he has this thing and it's called an ephod. It's really important. Now, what was an ephod? Why was this a big deal? Well, if you were an ancient Israelite, you would know, but we're not that, so we have to be explained. An ephod was part of the ancient priestly garments, the liturgical, ritual clothing that God commanded his worship leaders to wear, okay? And it was this thing that they wore on their, on their robes, and basically God in his grace gave the ephod as a tool to receive communication from God. Now, we don't really understand how this worked And the means of how this worked, which the Bible doesn't explain, um, doesn't give those details, is not as important as the fact that it just happened. That God chose, again, to condescend to his people through means that he gave to communicate with his people. So for an ancient hearer, when you hear that David has an ephod now connected to one of the, the priests, Abiathar, What that means to you is communication with God is now available in a a unique sort of way in the Old Testament time period. And if David has this, it's more indication to the original hearer that God will listen to David, that God has not rejected David. Again, it's just another contrast. God is willing to, to not oppose David like he opposes Saul. Why? Because David, in this chapter at least, is displaying humility, and Saul is not. Continuing the contrast. These first six verses, it couldn't be any more stark. Saul has lost his mind, and David is pursuing the Lord. So that's what verse 6 is all about. Well, now we turn to verse 7, and it 
the focus shifts back to Saul. Look at verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. Now look at what Saul says in verse 7. God has given him into my hand. Isn't it interesting to see that Saul, in his delusion, thinks that God is on his side? Like, he hasn't heard from God like David has. He's just assuming. Like, sometimes when you're in so deep, drinking your own Kool-Aid, believing your own narrative, that you can interpret events as God working in your favor. Saul hasn't prayed. Saul hasn't asked God, yet he thinks he's in the right. And since he thinks that David, we learn in this text, he's in this town, evidently, that was well fortified, high walls, bars, that it would be easy for the people of Calah to, to just keep David hemmed in for Saul just to come and get him. Well, let's keep reading. <clears throat> well, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here, meaning we need to have a conversation with the Lord. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. David continues to face adversity. You see this? But that's our point from the text. When faced with adversity, what do disciples do? Disciples turn to the one who's truly in control and do what he says. See, look at what David does here. When faced with this continued adversity, it does, the, the text doesn't say, and he gathered his men for a strategic summit. He, he didn't try to manipulate the leaders of, of Calah and negotiate with them. He doesn't run a, a cost-benefit analysis of the situation. Now, those, those things might, in a secondary sense, be good and useful for all of us. But what's primary? He just turns to the Lord in prayer, in communication with God of the universe, as a first response. He seeks the mercy of communication with God. And again, God speaks his word of mercy to David. Basically, he says to David, yeah, you should leave right now. He rescues David with his word. He rescues David with his revelation of himself. And what did, I mean, it's so simple, you miss it. But what did David and his men do? They don't doubt God. They're not like, uh, I'm not sure. Does God really know what he's talking about? No, they listen and then they act upon it, right? They believe by faith 
they trust in God's word and they act upon it. And let's see that work out here. Look at verse 13. Then David and his men, they were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remains in the strongholds in the wilderness. David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Zeep. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. So David believes God by faith. He hears God's word and trusts it by faith. And what happens? They're saved from God's enemies. Did you catch that? That just sounds like Christianity, right? He hears God's word and trusts it by faith, and they're saved from the hand of God's enemies. See, what David is modeling, this is a really simple section of Scripture. It's so simple, it's easy for us to miss it, but David is just modeling Christian discipleship here. When faced with adversity, disciples trust the one who's truly in control and do what he says. Listens to the one who's truly in control and do what he says. David is just modeling basic Christian discipleship. Now be reminded, David is not going to always act this way. He's a sinner, and his faith in God's promises are not always this steady. Like, the Old Testament does not paint David or anybody else in white that is pure as the driven snow. Now, we get, we get warts and all from these guys. What does that show us? That shows us that David's not the hero. Jesus is the true hero. But yet, this chapter does display true discipleship as the Bible lays it out. When faced with adversity, disciples trust and listen to the one who's truly in control and do what he says. So in closing, I want you to see how the narrator closes this little section. And oftentimes in a narrative in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, pay attention to how the narrator kind of gives a punchline, kind of sums up things. Oftentimes that's really where the point of the text resides. And I think that's true in verse 14 as this scene kind of wraps up. Look at verse 14, the second half. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Just like we saw above, where David acknowledged God's control, where God said, I will give them into your hand, I will give the Philistines, meaning God saying, I'm in control. The author underscores that again. Just like we saw above. He wants the original audience to really understand and embrace who's in control here. Is it Saul? Is it David? No, God is in control. But God did not give him into his hand. Meaning, 
Like, until God gives the permission, David's going to be fine. And this is painfully lost on Saul. It's not going to end well for Saul. And to the degree that David operates in this faith, things do go well for him. When faced with adversity, disciples trust the one who's in, truly in control and do what he says. God forbid any of us in the, this room have somebody someday wanting to hunt us down and kill us like David is here. But all of us face adversity of one form of another in our lives. And the longer you live, the more this rings true. But in addition to that is, man, such good news that just like we see in this text, God has spoken for disciples today that seek adversity of every kind. He has said in Matthew 28, I will be with you as you seek to make disciples and all the adversity that comes with that. God has promised, I will be with you to the very end Matthew 28, verse 20. Memorize it. Embrace it. Fixate on it. God has not abandoned his people. He has promised in his very word that he is with you. He said in Matthew 10, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but then can do nothing more. Fear the one who has the power over hell. Like, you don't have to be afraid because I'm in control. That's what God says in Matthew 10. That's a promise. He said in Romans 8, 37 and 38, that neither height nor depth nor angel nor demon or a whole host of other things could ever possibly separate you from the love that God has for you in Jesus. Translation You'll never be isolated ultimately. You'll never be alienated ultimately. That's a promise. That's a promise. So God's word is filled with promises. You might not have the same experience of direct speaking with God like David had here. This is how God speaks. He might speak in dreams and visions or other miraculous ways, but for the most part, you can bank on him speaking to you right here. And these promises are enough when you face your day of adversity. Again, when faced with adversity, disciples trust the one who's truly in control and do what he says. Does this not point to the day many years after King David when the true king, King Jesus, being faced with the most adversity that any human could ever face, lies prostrate in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if this cup would pass from me, may it be so, but not my will, but your will be done. And he trusts his heavenly father as he moves forward for the joy set before him by faith to endure the cross for our salvation. 
Like his perfect obedience is our salvation. His obedience and perfect trusting in the Father is the means by which we are saved even when we fail to be like David here. And it's also for David too. In the future, we're gonna see him fail multiple times and fail to live up to his example that he shows here in chapter 23. Like Jesus is the only one who has done this perfectly and because of this, how much more should we trust him and his promises, right? Believe him and then return to him when we fail knowing that his mercy was purchased for us at the cross and confirmed and guaranteed in the empty tomb. And may that gospel enable us to trust him as the one who's truly in control, as the one who dealt with our adversity in th- that, that was the most severe. The adversity of our sin and the judgment and the wrath of God that, that, that is justly poured out on those who don't turn to him in repentance and faith, but those who do turn to him in repentance and faith. We can know that he's for us and not against us. We can know that we have a heavenly father. We know we can turn to the one who's truly in control when we face adversity of every kind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the life of David. We thank you for the fact he could be our model today for us. Father, we, we thank you that you've given us your son, King Jesus, to go before us. Lord, we thank you that, that you have spoken in your word, that you have given very precious promises that we trust by faith that gives us hope as we wait on you Lord, for those that are in the room right now that are facing adversity, Lord, I pray that that your word would help them this morning, that they would turn to you, trust you. Lord, we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a question here. It's a good question. Do we know how God spoke to David? Was it literally audible? Was it a dream or a vision? Was it a, quote, gut feeling in David? Applying this to our own lives, how can we know if, when God is speaking to us? In my experience, I've never heard God's audible voice. Well, there's a lot we could say about this. There's a lot that's been written about this, and there's a lot of um, potential controversy with this kind of thing. So I can do my best. Um, I won't give a definitive answer on this in any way, but um, in terms of how, like the mechanism of God's communication here with David, um, we don't really know. And that's probably not the point. The point is that it happened, not how it happened. But that would also be true of many other places in the Bible 
like in Acts 13, Dave, um, the Bible says in Acts 13 that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church to set apart Paul and I, th- I think Barnabas, it might be Silas, I can't remember, but to set apart Paul and either um, Silas or Barnabas, to set them apart to go and plant churches. It doesn't say how the Holy Spirit spoke, but just that it did. And so <clears throat> this can be really um, challenging in a variety of ways. Um, there's ways that this could be neglected, and there's ways that this could be uh, abused. And so you hear me talk a lot about, like, the twin ditches. So on the one hand, um, we believe that, that, that God does. Uh, he hasn't ceased communicating with his people. Um, there's a lot we can say about this. We, we preached a sermon on the Holy Spirit, a sermon series on the Holy Spirit uh, many years ago. You can go online and, and listen to that. I would encourage it. But there's people that are called cessationists, and I, I'm not going to assume to accurately, um, I'm not going to assume to be able to steel man this and not straw man this argument, if you know what I mean by that. Um, but Basically, they would say that um, the only revelation of God that's possible today is in God's written word. And uh, we would not affirm that. Um, But that being said, uh, you know, like I've never heard God's audible voice. I have had a couple experiences in my life where I would probably, it's always, language is always lost on you, right? Right? Is it, an, um, is it like an impression? Is it an uh, inclination? Um, but I've had a couple times that felt somewhat supernatural where I just felt like I needed to go and check in with this person. Um, I don't know why, and I just go and I do, and it turns out that, that the crucial conversation happens, and it seems like God was really in, in that moment. Um, I would call that an impression. Now, you can know that you're never going to receive an impression to do something that's apart from what God's revealed word. Like, you'll never get an impression to rob a bank, okay? And the examples go on and on, right? But my impression was, I need to go and talk to this person and just, hey, brother, how are you doing? And tears and, you know, um, there's lots of people that have stories like that. Um, So there's a way to... uh, to not be open, um, but we have to be careful because there's also a way to really abuse that, and when you play the God told me card, that can be really challenging uh, because God may not have told the other person that you're talking to. Like, extreme example, the the awkward junior in college that says to the girl that he has a crush on, God told me that we're supposed to get married. And she's thinking, well, he didn't tell me that. <laughs> or in my experience as a music pastor, uh, God gave me a song that I'm supposed to sing up front. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't say this out loud, but I'm not sure God writes songs like that, but I don't want to be mean. You know what I mean? But it's like, that, that can be very manipulative, you know, and, and dangerous. Um... So there's, there's ways that we can squash God's communication with us. The first way would probably be to neglect our Bible reading. 
I would really want to emphasize that. That's how we squash hearing the Lord. Um, but I think it's okay to pray. Um, like, you would never want to pray, God, um, show yourself to me. And he's saying, you have it. You have a cross and an empty tomb. I, I've spoken, like, like Hebrews chapter 1, I've got to be careful because I don't want to preach a sermon here, but just bear with me. This is really, this is really important. This is really important. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, Hebrews chapter 11. No, sorry, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, many times, and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. See our text for today. Samuel, he speaks. Speaks to David. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God has spoken to us by his son. Where do we find the words of the son? We find the words of the son in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. A little bit in Acts. That's where God speaks. Emphasize that, right? So you never want to pray, God, show me you are. And, he, and he's saying, I, I have shown you. Put your face in this book and soak it and read it. That is God's word to you, written down by those who actually heard Jesus speak, and they've recorded it in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, we should be open to the inclination of the Spirit. And to the degree that, that you feel an impression that is not going against Scripture, you know, the Bible says, test the spirits, hold on to what is good, reject what's, what's evil. I can't give you a roadmap or a, a, a to-do list on how that works. That's something we should probably talk about in community with Bibles open. Um, and be careful with the God told me saying that to somebody. Um, there's probably a way to do that that is more pastoral or wise. Um, I believe that you could feel that way. Um, but how that works out in community can be complicated. So you guys hear the twin ditches there? You feel that? And, and this isn't a perfect response to this question, but um, that's probably sufficient for now. And let's continue to talk about it if this is something you guys are thinking about. And, um, and, and we, can, we can do that together.